This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Um, we are looking at the, the last um, uh, message in the book of Judges uh, today. So, if, unless you're new here, you know we've been, we've been in the book of Judges, and the series has been called Broken People, Faithful God. And we've seen that throughout the series. We've seen a broken world. We've seen that again this week with the events in San Bernardino. We continually see this in the news, um, the brokenness of our, our world, the brokenness of people. But we also see in Judges the faithfulness of our God. So last time that we were uh, in Judges, we began to talk about probably the most famous figure in the entire book, Samson. And we looked at part one of Samson's story, which is in chapters 13 and 14. And today we're going to look at the second part of Samson's story in chapters 15 and 16 and talk about what we can learn from Samson's story, because this is not just sort of a, a fascinating story. It is fascinating. I mean, it reads like a thriller, but we've got to get beyond that and, and ask what can we learn and what can we apply. So we're going to look at Judges 15 and 16, and we're going to be walking through those two chapters, so I won't read them at the beginning, but let's pray. Here at the beginning as we get started, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for an opportunity once again to dig into your word. We thank you for the book of Judges. We thank you for the opportunity to learn together from this great book over the past weeks this fall. And we thank you for how we see amid all of the dysfunction and all of the brokenness in the book of Judges, we see your faithfulness. And more than that, we see how this book points to the real king that the world needed, which is Jesus. Speak to our hearts now, we pray in his name. Amen. In Shakespeare's play Macbeth, there's a, a famous scene in which these witches are gathered in a cave and they're around a fire and they chant double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Well, that famous line from Macbeth really would sort of summarize a lot of what we've seen in Samson's story so far. There's a lot of trouble that is going on. And we saw last time that he has a miraculous birth. In fact, it's a prophesied birth. The the angel comes to Samson's mother, who up until that point had been unable to have a child, and she says, you are going to be able to give birth. And not only that, but the son that you give birth to is going to save his people from the Philistines. So chapter 13 was a really beautiful story about the birth of Samson. But then, in the very next chapter, 
in chapter 14, we, we see how Samson is as a young man. And we see already there are some major problems with his character. <laughs> because th- this guy who w- is supposed to save his people from the Philistines, he-, he wants to marry a Philistine woman, which was problematic in so many ways. And his parents try to d- dissuade him from doing this, but he's bullheaded. He insists on doing it. And so he goes down into Philistine territory for his wedding, and he makes a foolish wager, and violence takes place, and many people are killed. So by the end of chapter 14, and the the beginning of chapter 15, where we are today, things are just ripe for conflict between Samson and the Philistines. So that's where we pick it up, just to kind of recap things. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this in two parts. First of all, we're going to look at what happens in chapters 15 and 16. And so we're going to just kind of walk our way through the, the, this fascinating story. But then in the second part of the message, I want us to look at some takeaways. And we're going to ask the question, what can we learn from what happens. So let's, uh, let's ask, first of all, what happens? What happens in chapters 15 and 16 of Judges? Let's kind of walk through it here. So in verse 1, it says, later on at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. And he said, I'm going to my wife's room. But her father would not let him go in because what Samson doesn't know is that he doesn't have a wife anymore. He's gone down to marry this Philistine woman, but then there is so much trouble and there's a fight that takes place. And what ends up happening is that Samson's father-in-law gives away the bride to another guy. And Samson doesn't even know it. And so he goes down to get his bride and doesn't understand. He he no longer has a bride. And so in verse 2... Uh, The father-in-law says to Samson, I was so sure you hated her that I gave her to your companion, another young man in the wedding party. Now, you just know already from what we know about Samson's character, this is not going to sit well uh, with Samson. Okay, trouble is going to come, and it does very, very quickly. Verses 3 through 5, Samson said to them, this time. I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shucks and the standing grain together with the vineyards and Olive grove. So he, he takes these 300 foxes, makes 150 pairs of them, lights their long tails on fire, and turns them loose. And they just utterly destroy all of the crops of the Philistines. Well, the Philistines are ruthless people. And they respond in a manner that is true to form. Verse 6 
when the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. They just, the Philistines say, hey, you, you burn our livelihood, and we're going to burn your love. And of course, this creates even more retribution on Samson's part, verses 7 and 8. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. So you have this back and forth violence between Samson and the Philistines. But the Philistines by this point understand, yet we can't deal with this guy. He has been given supernatural strength that we just we can't handle. And so they, they say, we've got to figure out some way to bring him in. And so they decide what we're going to do is, in order to get to Samson, we're going to put pressure on his people. And so basically they go to the people of Judah and they say, look, you either hand Samson over to us or there's going to be, it's going to be bad news for you. And so that's exactly what happens. Verse 11, then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Etam and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Now, Samson is going to allow them to do that. He's going to allow them to tie him up. But Samson just shatters their bonds like they're just pieces of twine. You know, he just he breaks free, and then what happens at the end of chapter 15 is that Samson proceeds to kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, which establishes him as the next judge in Judges. At the end of chapter 15, in verse 20, it says, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines, unfortunately. Samson could not lead himself. <laughs> His biggest enemy, Samson's biggest enemy is Samson. Um, he's supposed to be the leader, but the leader can't lead himself. And we see that very, very quickly at the beginning of chapter 16, the first verse of chapter 16. One day, Samson went to Gaza, which is Philistine territory, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. Now, We've already seen that Samson has no self-control. He is lustful. He can't keep his eyes off women. He pursues all of these illicit, sinful relationships. And whenever he does, there's always trouble as a result. And it's no different in this situation because what happens? Verse 2, the people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn we'll kill him. So basically, Samson doesn't guard his heart. 
And as a result, his life is now unguarded. His life is in jeopardy. But once again, God, in his grace, in his mercy, is going to spare Samson's life and provide a way of escape. And so uh, we see in verse 3, but Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts and tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. This um, is a, a, a mosaic that was actually just found in the summer of 2013 in Israel. It was found in the remains of a 5th century synagogue. And the mosaic is Samson carrying the gates of Gaza. You can see his hands lifted up above his shoulders here and, and carrying these gates. And so not only does God spare Samson's life, but God continues to give him this supernatural strength. And how does Samson respond to God's mercy and patience and grace? He responds by pursuing the most dangerous woman yet. Verse 4. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And this is the one who is going to be his undoing. Verse 5. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So from the very beginning, this relationship of Samson and Delilah is going to be one of, of basically her trying to, to scheme to, to get him to tell her the secret of his strength. And we see in verse 6, Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Now, if this wasn't a clue to Samson, okay, I mean, you know, but he's blind. He is blind. He is blinded by his own lust. And ironically, he is going to end up literally blind by the end of this story. Now, what happens in the middle of, of Judges 16, and I won't read it all, but Samson and Delilah sort of get into this game of back and forth, and she'll, try to, she'll beg and plead for him to tell her the secret of his strength, and he'll lie and tell her, oh, it's this and that. If you tie me up with this kind of cord, you know, uh, my strength will be gone. He's lying, um, but she continues to kind of break him down. And, and plead with him. And so finally, she succeeds. And he breaks. And verse 17 says, he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said. 
Because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. And now the trap slams shut. Verses 18 and following. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Could anything be sadder than the end of verse 20? He did not know that the Lord had left him. You see, God is slow to anger. He is gracious, patient, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. But, you know, if we defy him long enough, If we harden our hearts and we persist in a course of disobedience, then eventually God says, okay, I'm going to let you taste what life is like without my blessing and without my protection. And, And really, it was his mercy Because he could have allowed Samson just to persist in hard-hearted disobedience and die that way. But God is going to humble him so that he can see clearly. It's ironic. He doesn't begin to see clearly until he's blind. (laughs) But it's a, boy, is it a humbling that Samson receives. Verse 21. Then the Philistines seized him gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. It's so ironic. Throughout his life, Samson's downfall is what? He can't keep his eyes off women, and now he doesn't have any eyes. Samson has been a slave to lust And now he's just a slave, grinding grain in this prison. See, sin grinds. It grinds and it blinds. And Samson is is reaping what he has sown. He's he's experiencing um, painful discipline. But there's a twist that's coming. There's a dramatic twist that's coming in this story. So he's in this prison. His eyes are gouged out. He's nothing but a pathetic slave. But, verse 22, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, you ask, why did the Philistines allow that? (laughs) Why did they let his hair grow back? Well, they probably thought that since Samson's Nazarite vow 
had already been shattered, that, you know, his strength was going to be permanently gone. But see, that's kind of a man-centered way to look at it. Um, What they didn't understand was that Samson's strength had never been about the strength of his vow, but the strength of his God. And they're about to find out all about that God, because the showdown is coming. Verses 23 and following. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. See, now the real showdown is coming, which is not about Samson and the Philistines. See, this, the real showdown, it, it, it threw out all of the different battles that have taken place, and, and here, in this most dramatic moment, ultimately this is not about Samson and the Philistines. Ultimately, this is about Yahweh and Dagon. Now, that's a mismatch, if there ever was one. Okay? The one true God versus a non-God, a false God. What's going to happen here? When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And, the, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Now that's a story, right? That is some story. But what can we learn from it? Okay, let's, let's get some takeaways from this. Okay, what can we learn from what happens, from, from Samson's whole uh, story? First of all, Motive check. Motive check. You know, Samson wins a lot of battles, most of them with a lousy motive. You know, we can see that coming out in chapter 15 and verse 3. Samson says to them, this time I have a right to get even. Again, in verse 7 of chapter 15, Samson says, since you've acted this way, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge. It wasn't about God's glory. It was about his personal revenge. You know, but, but what does God's word tell us about taking personal vengeance? You know, Paul says in Romans 12, 19, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, 
but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God says personal vengeance, you know, bringing judgment, that's, that's, that's my role. You have no right to usurp my role. You know, if someone wrongs you then, and they don't repent, then God can, is perfectly capable of, of, of dealing with them, and he will. But it's not our role to take personal vengeance on our enemies. Jesus says what? Love your enemies on a personal level. Yeah, so his motives are wrong. Motive check. Second, sin check. Sin check. I mean, Samson's, Samson's troubles, all of his troubles spring from his own sin. And his life, his whole life really is an illustration of Proverbs 6, 27 and 28. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? You know, and it's not just that Samson brings a lot of pain into his life because of his sin. You know, but think about all the good things that he misses out on because of his sin. It, his life didn't, it didn't have to be this way. You know, Samson could have, he could have married a, a godly Israelite woman who loved God, who would have loved him. They could have had a family together. Um, all of the strife, all this pain that he brings into his life because of his sin. You know, he, it's not just that sin... When we sin, we bring so many bad things into our life, but we miss out on so many good things. Sin check. Third, heart check. Time after time, we see that the Spirit rushes upon Samson and enables him to carry out these feats of supernatural strength but his, even though he's in, he gets these moments where he's empowered by the Spirit, where's his heart? His heart's a wreck. <clears throat> his heart's a cesspool. And there's an application here as well, because we have seen too many times, haven't we? You know, where someone can have tremendous gifts of the Spirit without having the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, they may be a powerful preacher, you know, they may have a great gift of teaching. They might be a great leader, you know, charismatic leader. But in their heart, there's just all kinds of just, you know, their heart's a wreck. Um, and eventually that manifests itself. And so, look, we need to ask, you know, when we're looking at church leadership, or we need to ask ourselves, not just, hey, th- does he or she have gifts of the Spirit? We need to ask about the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Because, you know, you can have, you can have gifts and, and your heart be really messed up. You know, we need to ask about the fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are you growing in these areas? You know, what, what's happening in your heart today? You know, because you can be really successful at your job. You know, you, on the outside, everything can seem, you can, people can seem to have it all together. And their heart 
just be really messed up? Are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Heart check. Fourth, humility check. Humility check. This is a deeper issue in Samson's life than lust is. Um, And we see it from the time he was a young man. And he wants to pursue a, a Philistine wife. And his godly parents come to Samson and they say, look, you are messing up big time. His, his, his parents come to him in 14.3 and they say, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. She's right in my eyes. I mean, it was just arrogance. He's not teachable. He doesn't listen. And you also see that lack of humility after many of his victories. You know, after he kills the thousand Philistines with the jawbone of the donkey, he can't resist arrogantly taunting them. What does he say? 15:16. Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. Again, you know, it's not about God's glory. It's about him. It's about his glory. There's a lack of humility there. In fact, many commentators believe that the reason that Samson is so unguarded with Delilah, you know, and falls asleep in her lap and, you know, just puts himself in this vulnerable position, is that deep down, Samson thinks he's bulletproof. You know, deep down, at the deepest level, he doesn't think God is the source of his strength. He thinks the source, the, the strength comes from, from him. And see, time after time, God is so patient with him. And he gives him chance after chance, doesn't he? He keeps sparing his life. He keeps giving him this, this supernatural strength. But what Samson doesn't get is that every time God does that, that's another opportunity for him to humble himself and repent. You know, Paul says in Romans 2, 4, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Samson just doesn't seem to get that. He just persists in disobedience instead of taking the opportunity to repent. But he thinks, you know, things are going well. God continues to bless. He continues to deliver me. He continues to give me, you know, I I continue to to have all of the supernatural strength. You know, from a spiritual standpoint, a lot of times prosperity is a greater danger to us than adversity. When things are going well in our lives, sometimes that can be a more dangerous time than when we're going through trials. There's a great Puritan pastor named John Flavel who once said this, outward gains are ordinarily attended by inward losses. And there's a corollary to that too. (laughs) And that is that um, outward losses are often attended by inward gains. 
And some of you have experienced that. And you can look back over the course of your life and you can see that times of trial in your life were actually the times when you grew the most spiritually. You found out that that deep, dark valley in your life really became a valley of vision. You know, where you could, you could see spiritual, thing, spiritual reality very clearly. And Samson's going to get to that point too. He's going to have to be blind in order to be able to see, ironically. But that's going to happen in, 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 in his life. And, 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 and the Samson that we see here in 1628, he's a different guy, isn't he? Okay, this is when he's in prison and he's been blinded. And he prays to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. This is a different guy. You can see it really in three phrases. First of all, he addresses God as Sovereign Lord. Here's this guy who has spent his life chasing after Philistine women who worshipped false gods. But now he understands who the true God is. Sovereign Lord. And then what does he pray? He says, God, remember me. In other words, Lord, (laughs) you have every reason to forget me. (laughs) You have every reason to ignore me. After all that I've done, but but Lord, in your mercy, and your grace, would you remember me? And then, strengthen me. Strengthen me. Yeah. Samson had lived under the illusion that his strength came from him, and now he knows that's not the case. He knows it's from God. He says, Lord, I don't deserve it, but for your glory, would you, would you strengthen me once more? Now, see, this is why the, after all of Samson's transgressions, here at the end of his life, we, we see genuine faith in God. And that's why the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, when he mentions all of these men and women of faith, he says this, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength. I think that last phrase is about Samson. Samson, in this time of weakness, is going to discover where true strength comes from. That it comes from God. And he's going to be humbled. First Peter 5 says, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humility check. Fifth, theology check. Theology check. You know what? There are just some things about judges and some things about Samson's story that you just cannot understand apart from sound theology. And, and the first thing is this, the sovereignty of God in all of this. You know, the kind of the, we talked about it last time, the hinge verse, really, that lurks behind everything that takes place in Samson's story was in chapter 14 and verse 4. This is after he's told his parents he's going to marry this Philistine woman, and of course they try to talk him out of that. He doesn't listen, but it says something else was going on. 
His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. In other words, Samson is sinning by marrying this Philistine woman, um, and his parents know that. And, and, and his parents, so his parents see what's going on on the surface, which was bad, but what they couldn't see and what Samson couldn't see was that a sovereign God was working beneath the surface. And God was doing something good. God was bringing something good out of something that was really bad. And God was using all of this to bring about the confrontation with the Philistines that was, that was going to be used to deliver Israel. Okay, and we talked about last time the fact that, you know, when you look at the cross of Christ, I mean, what do you see? Nothing but bad. I mean, people that were there that day at Calvary, I mean, they looked up. Here's, here's an innocent man being murdered. To the naked eye, it's just all horribly bad. But something's going on. That the naked eye can't see, right? There's something going on beneath the surface. Because beneath the surface, Jesus was bearing the weight of our sins, right? God was providing a way for us to be saved. And God was bringing about ultimate good out of ultimate bad. And what we need to understand in our lives is that he does that too. When you, when you go through trials, I mean, when, you, when, you, when things happen in your life that you just can't understand and you can't make sense of it. You know, Charles Spurgeon once said, when you, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. You can't always trace the hand of God. Some things are mysterious. Trust the heart of God. He is working for his glory and for your good. In all circumstances. Okay? That's the sovereignty of God. Second, we can't understand what's going on here without understanding that the whole Bible points to Jesus. Judges, in all of its dysfunction, and all of its sin, and all of its violence. Okay? The book of Judges points so clearly to Jesus. Why? In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Judges points to the fact that they needed a king. And God was eventually going to provide them a king in David, but David couldn't save them either. David's life pointed to the son of David. <laughs> the David who was the, the, the one who was going to be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. Christ the Lord. Christ the true king. You see, because you and I need a king. Doing life according to what's right in our own eyes is a recipe for disaster. We need a king to govern our lives. You know, Judges points to Jesus. Both of Samson points to Jesus. His miraculous birth points to Jesus. Right, we, we saw in chapter 13 that the angel of the Lord comes to Samson's mother, who's not even supposed to be able to have a child, and the angel says, you're going to have a son, and he's going to save his people from the Philistines. And that 
foreshadows what the angel was going to say to Mary one day. You're going to have a son, and he's going to save his people from their real problem, which is their sin. And we see the gospel in the death of Samson. You know, Tim Keller points out that when you look at the death of Samson and Jesus, you know, what do you see? Both are betrayed by someone close to them. Both are delivered over to the Gentiles. Both are bound and tortured. Both are mocked. And both are crushed. Samson is crushed by the temple of Dagon coming down on him. Jesus is crushed by what? He's crushed by the weight of our sin. You know, Isaiah says of the Messiah, he was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus was, was crushed by the weight of our sin as he bore it for us. But then the two stories go very different. Because chapter 31 ends this way. Chapter 16 ends this way. Verse 31. It says this of Samson. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him. And there the story of Samson ends. But with the burial of Jesus, the story really has only just begun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news. We pray for that good news to be extended to the nations. We pray for Christ to be praised and honored in every town and village and city by all peoples. And we pray that you would take what was given today and what will continue to be given through our Lottie Moon offering and that you would use it to bring about your glory and praise. Father, we, we pray that that would be happening from our own hearts. I pray for anyone here today who doesn't yet know Jesus as their king. Pray for anyone here today who's still trying to do life according to what is right in their own eyes. I pray that they would turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and trust in his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And that they would come to know him as Savior and King, the one who transforms the heart, transforms life. Father, if there are areas in our own lives that we are withholding from your kingship, your lordship. We, we pray that you would give us the grace to just fully um, surrender that to you, that, that Jesus would reign as king on the throne of our lives. And that means that every area of our lives is submitted to his lordship. We pray it in his name. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about a relationship with the Savior, we would love to talk with you and pray with you more about that. Um, if he's working in your life uh, to lead you to be a part of this church family, uh, we would love to talk with you about that as well as we stand and sing together. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything.
everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. And you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.